You are now tuned in to Conscientization 101, an online magazine combining reflection, music, and action through independent media. In America, the capitalist system not only makes the people stupid, but keeps them arrogant in their stupidity. This stupidity in the country, this calculated stupidity, affects the African masses more because they read even less than the others. And they need to read more. Our people suffer because they lack knowledge. At this stage of human development, one of the best ways to acquire knowledge indirectly is through reading. Yo, I'm reading this new book, man. Yo, this shit is so deep, yo. Shit got my mind thinking about a whole new other format, man. You know what I'm saying? Fuck a book, man. The book is fucking your head up, man. Yo, when's the last time you read anything, man? Never, motherfucker. Why won't he play throwing? Just act retarded. Cause when you grow single parent poor, that's your place. Don't read too many books, sag your jeans through your face. Chat shit, act thick, practice your backflip. Fuck your motherfucking ass out, flip the cameras. Provide the entertainment for your coachable betters. Men of letters think we could only be smart if they let us. No, knowledge ain't for punks, they market it like it is. Cause who the fuck wants to be cotton from fresh prints? But geeks design the systems, the visions, the politicians, Malthus and the Smiths. We're living in their vision, so knowledge is power. To devour on cowards that showered you with propaganda each and every hour That's why Malcolm never died, it's just another tug on the road A symbol over the globe, cause did you know? The most rebellious thing you can do is get educated Forget what they told you in school, get educated I ain't saying play by the rules, get educated Get educated, get educated, get educated Break the chains of their enslavement, get educated Even if you're on the pavement, get educated What a weapon that your brain is, get educated All right, welcome to another edition to Conscientization 101 Podcast. I am your host for this episode, Senior Editor James Stone. All right. Now, we got a good show for you today. As always, a very, very good show. Um, We're going to be airing excerpts from an interview we did back in 2011 with one Dr. Joao Costa Vargas. And this interview, uh, I talked to Joao about his books, Never Meant to Survive, Genocide and Utopias in Black Diaspora Communities, and Catching Hell in the City of Angels, Life and Meanings of Blackness in South Central Los Angeles. And uh, this interview took place in my hometown of Austin, Texas. We were actually at University of Texas Austin in UT Austin and it took place in 2011 a little bit about Joao Joao's from Brazil as you can tell the name Joao the common name in Portuguese is like saying John this Anglo-Saxon tongue you know what I'm saying Uh, he's from Brazil Joao is a PhD from the University of California San Diego and he's an associate professor at the Department of Anthropology and Department of African and African Diaspora Studies. Now, (laughs) one of the things about Joao, Joao understands that struggle will not come from some black studies department, so I'm pretty sure he does not, uh, I'm pretty sure, you know, he wouldn't say run down his vitae, but I'm just doing that for the listening audience, and this is by means, no means, all the work the brother does. Actually, how we actually met Joao. You see, I said 2011. So you're saying to yourself, dang, y'all been doing this for a long time. Yeah, we've been doing this for a long time. See, we were, we were actually, Zara and myself was actually doing some work back in 2010. And from that work, we were able, we were invited to a, a political prisoner symposium in Austin. Surprise, surprise. I was surprised. Shit, it's in Austin. And y'all been to Austin. That shit is, does not look like no site of struggle at all. That's a site. Or you struggle to get your ass up out of, right? So we got invited to this political prisoner symposium in 2011 based on some stuff we was doing in 2010, you know, trying to, you know, conscientizing, you know, gauging the practices and stuff. And so um, 
it was a real cool poli- uh, political prisoner symposium. Um, it's uh, we got to talk to uh, Matulu Shakur over the over the phone and stuff like that. And there was this one brother in there, you know, if you meet Joao, you know, Joao don't look like he play. He look like, man, this shit be looking absurd, man. Y'all, y'all, y'all just being bougie. I mean, he literally exudes a hate for the bougie Negroes, okay? So when he saw him, he was like, man, that dude look, you know, he looked pissed off just like me, you know what I'm saying? He was listening to that song from a collar before it even came out, right? Do you feel pissed off just like me? Do you feel pissed off just like me? So, uh, you know, we made some comments, we said some stuff, and the dude just came up to us and, you know, you know, after it was over with, invited us to go eat with him, chop it up, you know what I'm saying? He was just real cool. I was like, man, this is a cool dude. I didn't know who he was, right? So I looked him up, come to find out he was a professor, you know what I'm saying? I didn't hold that against him. <laughs> so I looked up some of his work and I read his books and... I'm telling you, Jawal's a brother that always come through. I mean, you hit him up on the email, he hit you right back. Real indicative. His actions are real indicative and really set and telling of what we need to do to get ourselves right because we have to we have to respond to each other just like that. We got to consolidate and organize. So I hit him up, we made a plan, and we did this interview back in 2011. And uh, we're really happy to say that we just got back from Austin and from August 1st, 2015, and we just revisited. We did another interview with Joao, and that's going to be airing really, really soon. I can't wait for you to listen to that one. So, But we felt like you had to listen to this one first so you can really fully appreciate and understand what we're going to be talking about in this next interview that we did fast forward four years here in 2015. And as you can still see, Joao Costa Vargas still holding on strong. We still make that connection. We still cool. That's a that's a good brother right there. Also, you can tell um, you're gonna listen to this recording and you're gonna be like, yeah, I hear a little in the background. That was the AC, and you can see we always getting better. The sound quality. We had to remaster this. This is from the original recording, but you can see we always getting better. We've been doing this for a minute now, and so it's through engaging and conscientization. 101 that we were able to you know what I'm saying get better and come to where we are today so I also want to say since we were talking about engaging in conscientization 101 this interview in its entirety was damn near 90 minutes all right so as we like to always remind you you're not necessarily hearing the best parts you're just hearing the best parts that's edited together for clarity okay what you need to do is get your subscription and go ahead and engage in that conscientization one-on-one, all right? Support independent media, support your brothers and sisters. Go ahead and go ahead and get your subscription, and we will tell you more about details, as we always do, at the end of the show. So without further ado, we're going to cut into the show, but we're going to get into some music first that I felt was appropriate from Big Frizzle. All Black Everything. Martin said to have a dream Marcus done show me to go back to Africa Malcolm said by any means And if you Congolese then you know about the massacre Martin said to have a dream Marcus done show me to go back to Africa Malcolm said by any means And if you Congolese then you know about the massacre All black everything Blacker than I've ever been More than my melanin You're smelling what I'm telling them Huey P vision Nat Turner decisions Rosa Parks defiance Stand for man like a giant With no tool tail Pushing and we riot Descended from Kemet and Kush We won't quiet Your new school blatant Or old school hating I don't like these schools I'm from the Zulu nation Spit a bar like Shaka Chaka Spear I erase and war paint Looking like Ghostface Mike Myers and Jason Your brother's been lost Concerned with being the boss Of a dingy little enterprise That ain't worth a toss Shouldn't have to scream R.I.P. for you to get it Cause bad brothers died for your bullshit Forget it It's supposed to be real Uncle Tom Step away from the house And join your brothers in the field Martin said to have a dream Marcus done show me to go back to Africa 
Malcolm said by any means And if you Congolese then you know about the massacre Martin said to have a dream Marcus done showed me to go back to Africa Malcolm said by any means And if you Congolese then you know about the massacre Diamond in the Congo soil, they unearth you Now life plays hard like Whoopi in color purple Broad day curfew, rape and they murk you Headshot four shells from a rat, no turtles I said my brothers in Congo where they won't go There's a bloody river flowing steady in the Congo I speak all the waste men beef over their postcode Poor people fed up, we just trying to get our bread up We used to be viewed as spear chucking coons Now you're just a hoodie or a goon Black bully in the room, my brother fully confused Talking all loose, they idolize bishop and juice What's the use? Far worse than illiterate, my brothers ain't getting it They can wash Smith but still can't wash the dishes Now how to look good but can't see past the gimmicks There's a war going on outside, we all in it Martin said to have a dream Marcus done showed me to go back to Africa Malcolm said by any means And if you Congolese then you know about the massacre Martin said to have a dream Marcus done showed me to go back to Africa Malcolm said by any means And if you Congolese then you know about the massacre Professor, Doctor, João, Costa Vargas. There you go. Here at his office here at UT. How you doing today? Good, and you? <laughs> I'm doing all right. All right. My first question is: In your two sublime literary achievements, Catching Hell in the City of Angels, Life and Meanings of Blackness in South Central Los Angeles, and Never Meant to Survive, Genocide and Utopias and black diaspora communities, I found that the fulcrum of these two books' thesis rested upon the ontological position of the black relegated to, uh, relegated to that of suffering, i.e. as Frank B. Wilderson talks about modernity creating the slave. Could you explain the thesis of these two books and how they're interconnected to one another? Well, you, you, you must be one of the few people who ever read those books. They're not very read, that, they're not read that much. Um, the thesis of the book, or the books, I would say that what I'm trying to write about is how black folks have managed to survive in places and in times when they're not supposed to survive. So what? So that that's what those two books are about. The first one about LA is trying to describe ethnographically how folks put up with daily acts of police brutality, of marginalization from the job market, of exploitation by landlords, by small business people, and so all of these things added up to a chronic lack of health that all of us black folks seem mm -hmm. to experience. <laughs> How all of that contributes to always struggle. So that's what these books are trying to do. So the first one on LA, the second one tries to address what black folks both in LA and in Brazil deal with very similar circumstances. And interestingly, how they come up with very similar strategies to combat 
those types of, of anti-black oppression. All right, all right. All right, now we're delving into my second question. We're kind of going to go into, um, um, things get interesting. That's what we're going to say. I, I really want you, I want you to expound on this one, especially in this new millennium we're in right now with, you know, you know, the negation of all, every, all racism because black people don't exist anymore. All right, one of the things I found fascinating as well as utterly disturbing is the way that colonialism manifests itself in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. It may appear to be different, but ultimately it's the same. Let's take Brazil, for example. Brazil has the largest population of blacks in the world, second only to Nigeria. But a game that is played is this Byzantine, and I say asinine, color coding system to obfuscate the numbers of black people in Brazil. So, so that they won't identify with being black. Sounds familiar here in America? Anyway, you see that same sort of political line here in the empire with this post-racial BS that I uh, call it. You specifically tackle this issue head on. You actually use the term, and I love this term, by the way. I, I use this a lot, and people don't know what I'm talking about, because when you lose it in everyday lexicon, a lot of times the only thing people understand is football. But anyway, I still use it a lot. It's called hyperconsciousness of race negation dialectic, mm-hmm. or uh, dynamic as well. It's referred to as dynamic. Can you explain how this dialectic and the institutional institutionalization of the term mixed race mm-hmm. plays itself out in a very sinister way, not only in Brazil, but throughout the political and libidinal economy of the world. Yeah. Yeah, the Brazil case, I agree with you, is very telling. Not, not because Brazil is unique, but as you suggest, it's really part of a diasporic continuum. In other words, what you see happening in Brazil may on the surface be different than what happens here but at bottom you are dealing with similar anti-black processes so this is how it works in brazil we have we brazilians have been trained we have been convinced through vocabularies through narratives through public policy that what we have in Brazil are color differences, not race differences. Hmm. Race doesn't exist. It has not existed at least since the turn of the 20th century. <laughs> and I say this taking into account the work that intellectuals and public officials have had in Brazil to make that reality stick. And so the way that it works is the following. The Portuguese, differently than the Mm Anglo-Saxons, didn't harbor race prejudice. So much so that unlike the British that arrived in the US and unlike the Dutch that went to South Africa, the Portuguese will and would happily intermarry. That's uh, in Angola and also in Guinea-Bissau, there's the some yeah. lotto yeah. status if you, uh, or if you had certain property and uh, could demonstrate that you, you, know, you can negate yourself or something. Yeah, and, and and more specifically, the Portuguese male would marry with the black woman as both a result of physical attraction and as part of a work strategy. So I'm going to marry this woman, and our kids will help us work. I mean, they're on that, there were no white women around. Mm. Right? So you produce these kids, mixed race kids, that will contribute to your economic sustainability. (laughs) So that's one thing. You go back to the times of slavery and, and what you also get, what you see these Brazilian intellectual sayings that Brazilian slavery was not as anti-black as in other parts of the world. 
And an example of that is that white kids were encouraged to initiate their sexual lives with enslaved black women. Kids were encouraged to value the enslaved's food, the enslaved's rhythms and music, so that rather than being this very segregated social system, slavery from the beginning in Brazil encouraged this proximity. Oh. Right? Yeah, and this proximity created a whole class of mixed-race folks that were, if on the one hand not entirely white, were also not entirely enslaved. So from the very beginning of colonialism in Brazil, you had this huge substratum of mixed-race folks who occupied this position that justified this notion that Brazil, Brazil was witnessing a new mixed-race society. Now, keep in mind that what I'm telling you is not a historical record. It's how these white intellectuals in Brazil really? made sense yes. of the historical record. Because if you look at these patterns of sexual initiation and apparent valuing of things black, this happens throughout the diaspora. Exactly. This is no different than the US. This is no different mm -hmm. than anywhere you go. What's different really is how these things are read and how they are utilized by public officials. Sure. So in many ways, since the 1930s in Brazil, you see a series of narratives and beliefs that predate colorblindness. It's really interesting. So while you guys in the US are, be, are beginning to talk about colorblindness, when? 80s, 90s. Mm -hmm. That same type of, of understanding and ideology has been spread out in Brazil since at least the 30s. So what that does is, on the one hand, it says race does, does not exist. Yeah. And on the other, just like here, is extremely effective in maintaining racial hierarchies. So you go anywhere in Brazil, and what you will see are patterns that are very familiar to anyone inhabiting the diaspora. Namely, white folks have the property, have the power, and black folks, mixed race folks, will occupy the subordinate positions in society. So where is the hyper-consciousness? The hyper-consciousness is in the fact that folks will look at you and immediately will classify you That's right. That's right. racially. But they won't say they that. They won't say it, yes. We yeah. will not never say that. So it's really hard to get at it, right? Because the discourse is one of color. So we'll call each other Moreno, we'll call, it, we'll call each other all kinds of names that emphasize your color in a benevolent way, all the while knowing exactly what we mean. where you fit in, in the hierarchy, in the race continued. You know? So when they say, oh, you, are, you have a beautiful light brown color, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. right? so for the inattentive analyst or for the tourist, that means oh, that <laughs> there's no race in Brazil, look, this is beautiful, right? Yes, yes, yes. But on the other hand, what that does is it makes it evident that in order for me to say that you have a beautiful light brown skin color, I need to have before that statement this very clear perspective on who's black and who's That's not. That's right. So the racial understanding is there, it just doesn't come out explicitly as it does in other places. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, I got another question that I didn't think about that, and it's like, wow, that's, um, that's deep. Uh, but uh, I wanna go ahead and just say, uh, on page 18 of Never Meant to Survive, Genocide of the Utopias in the Black Diaspora Communities, y'all picked that up. Um, I want to read off what you say. It says, in times of increased public sentiment, 
and political campaigns against affirmative action in times of increased institutionalization of, quote, mixed race classifications, whose results are the obvious dilution of the already fragile political clout of the black population, there is a need for committed research and political agendas. I think you just unpack that, but just kind of expanding on that in terms of when we say there's no, there's, there's no race and the institutionalization of the mixed race, I mean, how is you in Brazil, in America it's a little bit, it's, well, like you just talked about the reimagining of how it went, the sexual initiations, I'm, pre I'm pretty sure the, from the African perspective, they have a little different story than, you know, you know, I'm an initiation for some Portuguese colonizer, right? right. But how do you go about, I mean, because what I'm seeing here in America, if, if, if somebody can get classified as mixed race, they're jumping to it, and they're, yeah. and they're quick to emphasize, you know, you know, well, I'm black, but I'm, I'm mixed, but so I'm doing this, so my good shit is over here, my bad stuff is over here. And so how is it that, you know, talking about how, this, uh, how it unravels itself politically, how is it that we, uh, in Brazil, that, I mean, in American identity has always kind of been very explicit. You got the niggas over here, the white folks over there. But how is it that you can kind of organize in Brazil when you have all these different, this color continuum that obfuscates the issue, but also plays a role in the hierarchy and placing your beautiful brown skin in the flavellas. Right. Oh. Well, this is the other long-standing myth, and that's part of what needs to be revealed through research, through activism, is that contrary to what the proponents of racial democracy say, Brazil has always been a highly segregated place. Exactly. No different than here. Mm -hmm. So you go to poor neighborhoods, the poorer the neighborhood, the blacker it is. <laughs> Seriously. And the, you know, and, the rever well, and the reverse is also true. The, the, the more privileged, the wider it's going to look like. So you go to places, the tourist areas in Rio, and in any city in Brazil for that matter, are gonna look European. You turn on the television and you look at the evening news, you might as well be in Scandinavia. <laughs> Seriously. Because <laughs> right? the, the news media wow. draws from these elite communication schools to which only the elite has access, and the elite in Brazil is European. Mm -hmm. Right? Unmistakably so. Yeah. So to go back to your, to your question about research and activism, it's key to do research like folks such as Neo Oliveira, like Jurema Werneck, there's, there's a whole set of black activists, intellectuals in Brazil that have done just that. Denounce the farce of racial democracy while emphasizing the continuing significance of race in determining social hierarchies and places of residence. It is so obvious, right? Mm -hmm. So, how do you go about identifying these issues and overcoming them? Well, to identify, it's really about research, it's really about documenting yeah. this reality. And how do you go about rectifying, that's the question that's open, right? You ask different people and you're gonna get different answers. Yeah. Most black folks in Brazil, ironically, ironically, I think, very ironically, think that the way to rectify these historical racial inequalities is via public policy. So from the favela activist to the NGO, person, they all have their eyes set on Brazil. Brazil is the Brazilian capital. So these folks, regardless of their politics, they're mostly left, but the left is a huge bag. Yeah, it's a cabal. These folks have their, all their eyes trained to Brazil. So they are constantly negotiating with government officials, they are constantly writing out public policy that targets the Brazilian state 
in such a way that the Brazilian state is their only interlocutor. It's, a, it's an amazing moment in Brazil because of that. So the social movements are kind of emptied. While the black movement seeks the states. So you don't see any mass protest, mass movement outside of the realm of the state. So this is a moment in Brazil that's, that's really a crossroads of sorts. Because if these activists are right, if they are right, and I don't know, they may be, if they are right, it means that you can transform a structure that has been historically anti-black, i.e. the state, mm -hmm. and make it work for blacks, if they are right. If they are not right, what it means is that you've lost pretty much an entire generation yeah. of amazing activists, bright and committed, and focus exclusively mm -hmm. on a project that eventually will prove itself to be not only bogus, but detrimental to black folks. So this is the moment, and I'm, and I'm really, and I'm really uh, concerned about that. I really wish that they are right, but something tells me that they are not. Right? How, how are you going to reverse a set of bureaucratic dynamics, a set of resource applying methods that really don't depend on having James or Juan occupying places. There's a dynamic that is anti-black in nature. It doesn't matter if you have a black chief of police. Yeah. The police force is going to continue to kill and harass black folks, regardless of who the chief of police is, regardless of the number of black police officers. So if that example is true, and if you can use that example to think of the state, then we are in trouble. Kids in the bar, yours are my children. 
children, kids in Iran, yours are my children, Afghanistan, yours are my children, even Sudan, yours are my children, kids in Brazil, yours are my children, police die by the favela and just kill them, kids in Brazil, yours are my children, police die by the favela and just kill them. Divided, so no one that we could side of all the garners, stupid violence, all the fun, stupid tyrants. The blood of our defiance of the laws of natural science would have subsided the died of death. I had no hiding left, instead it provided the horse to ride onto the ride of death. We're enlightened, but we don't know right from left. Cause we're so frightened, it's like we're blinded to the sight of death. For all our writing, only writing on the doors of death. We're only fighting for the right to resort to theft. We'd still the air if we could, as if we're short of breath. Only if we're sure that it would have the cause and effect. If some part of us could, tell me where it's kept. Cause we're saying nothing while we're crushing like a fucking pest. If you discuss it, everybody's turning fucking deaf. Look down at your kids, what if they were next? Kids in Iraq, yours are my children Kids in Iran, yours are my children Afghanistan, yours are my children Even Sudan, yours are my children Kids in Brazil, yours are my children Police drive by the favela and just kill them Kids in Brazil, yours are my children Police drive by the favela and just kill them Kids in Iraq, yours are my children Kids in Iran, yours are my children Afghanistan, yours are my children Even Sudan, yours are my children Kids in Brazil, yours are my children Police drive by the favela and just kill them Next question, I just want to say basically that seems to be like that's the political climate that we're in. We find ourselves in this, in the, in the empire as well because I've never been in a point in time in my life. And by the way, y'all, everybody likes to say I'm very young, but I've seen, you know, I went through my fight the power stage public enemy when I was a kid, but I've never seen a, a moment when black folks here. African folks here in the U.S. were so accepting and wanted to hug the state and did not want any type of redress out the state and say, at least protest the state and say, and, and then, at least in the 60s there was an or else component to that. Now we have where you want me boss component. You know, can we get into, as you said in the, one of the meetings in the favelas, and uh, I think it was never meant to survive, how can we all get into Casa Grande? That's the big house. And uh, I love how, the, you know, no matter where we go, whether it's in Portuguese, Spanish, wherever we're at, we all have these same experiences, right? right. And so, it would seem to me we constitute a nationality, but uh, that's just me. We're all one people, but I'm just going to keep on going with my next question. Yeah. Nothing gives me more joy than to tear down icons in this topsy-turvy world of ours. But I especially feel it is important to tear down neo-colonial representations of progress, i.e. the African black, if we like to call it that, petty bourgeoisie all over the world. From your work, I've, uh, from your work I'm provided fuel for my fire to flourish, I will say that. Uh, I, I would like to read from Never Meant to Survive uh, right now. Never Meant to Survive, Genocide and Utopias in Black Diaspora Communities. You say, this is what you say, I'm reading from this book. Liberation and capitalism will never be possible. As long as we, and that's the capital W, feel even mildly comfortable in the master's house, genocide will continue. And another passage from there I'm gonna read. Existing modes of identity politics, and I want y'all to listen to this specifically. Kind of, it kind of goes back to the question I asked before. See, I make these things flow. I make them flow. Existing modes of identity politics may save our lives. Here's the key, y'all, that this brother wrote. Temporarily, but will not save our minds and souls. Now, both books dwell deeper into these two statements, but since we have the pleasure of having uh, Dr. Vargas in, in, in person here, I'm interviewing him, can you please expound on these extremely profound iconoclastic statements? And uh, I think somebody, but, but you know, just to add a, like, a kind of like uh, play the devil's advocate, is it Obama proof that we can make it if we just work hard? Uh, it sounds like what you are saying is that the existing polity 
in its relationship with black people is an antagonism as opposed to a conflict. I mean, but you know, isn't, and I'm being sarcastic because, you know, Obama said we can work hard and go for that state, but I mean, unpacking what those two statements from your book, I mean, capitalism provided so much wealth, modernity. I mean, I don't know. If I'm a little comfortable with my TV, what's wrong with that? You know, there's black people on TV, Jamie Foxx. I love that stuff, Tyler Perry. Um, I mean, in, in this identity politics, what are you talking about? I see a black guy say, you know, genetically predisposed to my particular political ideology. What are you talking about, uh, Vargas? I don't understand this. Please explain. The idea is, uh, is pretty simple, and, and the Brazilian example, once again, I think is, is a good one. And what we see happening in Brazil right now is more or less what took place here when the civil rights movement left the streets and entered the courts. That's a big house right there. <laughs> what does that do? That process of leaving the streets and entering the courts is one where you accept the rules of the game. Mm. And the rules of the game are such that historically, and I would say intrinsically, they are anti-black. So if on the one hand there's no capitalism without poverty, in racial capitalism there's no wealth without black poverty. Mm. Right? Uh, exactly. So what we what we inhabit is is a form of exploitation that not only requires those who have nothing but their labor, but in the diaspora, those who are black. So this is the most developed stage of capitalism is racial capitalism that in some important ways has left the door open to the white working class, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which happens in Brazil, which happens in the US, which happens everywhere in the diaspora. And keeping in mind that what I term white here is a modal term, right? Who I can be white, you can be white in Brazil so to speak. Wow. Meaning you get conditional acceptance <laughs> if and when you subscribe to the rules of subordination. So in, in my family in Brazil, for example, all the black folks have bought into that logic, which meant marrying white or lighter and accepting subordinate positions in their respective spheres of work. So you're always going to be the light-skinned Negro, you're going to be the mulatto, you're going to be the black person who, in spite of your blackness, is okay because you have a lighter-skinned wife or you have certain attributes, professional attributes, that make you acceptable. And what I'm trying to say here is that in spite of all of that apparent acceptance, you are still the black dude that has gained entry just because we've said so. It's kind of like, uh, it's more official in Brazil. It's kind of like, you see that manifesting itself here in the US, but it's kind of like written down and more like, it, you know, explicitly thought out in Brazil as opposed to? I would say that the dynamics are not that different. Mm. Think for example of what happened to black studies in this country. Mm -hmm. Historically it was the result of That's right. folks organizing, That's right. demanding that the walls of academia be broken down or at least make a few little holes for the non-white people. And originally had a very radical agenda, yeah. which was let's teach and let's understand these long traditions of oppositional thought from blacks, from Latinos, from Indians, right? Right. And that was a black power inspired perspective. 
this is black power. Mm -hmm. This is the gift of black power to the world, which is you organize, you come up with an intellectual strategy, and you lend it to other people. That's right. You don't like cap make it out of capitalism and then just like hoard the information, become an entrepreneur and try to right. You lend it. Yeah. You know, Latino brothers and sisters or Latino cousins. Let's let's organize and yes, we'll we'll open our archives. We'll sit down with you. We'll help you out. So let's have ethnic studies. Not just gonna be. It's not gonna be just black studies. It's ethnic studies. So black power is behind that initial breaking down of the academic barriers. Now, from 1968 to today, what you see is an increasing distancing of black studies from those black power agendas. <laughs> to such an extent that today, those black power connections are taboo. So black studies today is as far away from black power as they can be. And I'm talking about the general state of black studies in this country. Of course, there are pockets of radical black studies here and there, but in general, African-American studies is a formalization and is a narrative that tends to justify the, the, apparent, the apparent incorporation yes. of black folks into these intellectual spaces, into the so-called middle classes, and yeah. to go back to what we were talking about, into the state, to such an extent that now you have black folks in, in positions of heightened power, executive heightened power, you know, i.e. A, a, a nominally black president. So there's a process from black power to black studies that encapsulates this incorporation into places of society until they're closed off to black people. But on the one hand, gesture, assimilation, but on the other, make it so that genocidal processes go untouched. They go untouched and they're just being carried out with a black face and. If one looks at the, the term assimilation, in order to assimilate, you must negate yourself. So you can't have a system that needs your blood to survive, and then you get incorporated into that, and then say it's progress. And kind of like you're saying, the trajectory of black studies is, I, I remember sitting in a black graduate studies program at a black school, it was like a, for a PhD, and before I was just like, wow, this is crazy. There was a white professor teaching it, and you know, not gonna go into like you know genetic predisposition if he's a good teacher or not. But my first critique of capitalism and creating the slave was shot down. He goes, "Yeah, capitalism is bad. I know that. Let's not bemoan that. Let's talk about how Booker T. Washington starts to overcome that and use that so he can get in the system." And then some another student said, "Well, there's no need of being angry. We gotta move forward." teacher immediately gave praise. And this was at a black school, right? And so, it just comes clear to me that it's, it's like you just said, it's more about incorporation as opposed to actually understanding social system. And then that gets very, it gets very fuzzy and it gets very blurred when you start talking about identity politics. Right, so identity politics. So you're asking me, so what, what the hell am I criticizing identity politics for? <laughs> So this is what this is what I this is what I'm I'm trying to suggest. <clears throat> is identity politics necessary? Absolutely. We've got a whole archive of Blackfoot getting together with one another and coming up with theories and strategies and and leading up to Haiti, leading up to all kinds of amazing social achievements. There's one thing in identity politics that make it not sufficient. Once we get together, once we organize, once we get Haiti, then what? That's right. 
what's the logic behind identity politics? It's a, it's a logic of identification that uses a bunch of premises that are themselves unquestioned. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. So, are we organized as folks who are negatively racialized? Yes. Are we organizing as folks who, because of our negative racialization, suffer negative social consequences? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, why are we taken as less than human? There you go. Right? So that question needs to be <coughs> suspended, so to speak, once we engage in identity politics, because that's not that's not the objective of identity politics. Identity politics usually have a very pragmatic goal. We need to get together to achieve something. It's really not about a deep reflection on how we got here. This is where we got to leave it for now, but not to fret. If you want to finish listening to this interview in its entirety, all you have to do is go to conscientization101.com or c101magazine.com and subscribe today. And you will not only have access to this particular interview, but to all the C101 interviews, past, present, and future, plus much, much more. You can go to the website, like we said, and see subscription benefits for full details. And most importantly, you will be supporting 100% independent media. 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 This episode has featured sounds from Akala. The tracks are Get Educated, Pissed Off, Yours and My Children, from his albums Knowledge is Power, Mixtape Volume 1, The Thieves Banquet, and Doublethink, respectively. And Big Frizzle's track, All Black Everything. Again, we'd like to thank Joao Costa Vargas for doing the interview. And also, we want to let everybody know, remember, these are excerpts from this interview. You want to listen to the whole thing, but be on the lookout for our latest interview that took place this year, August 1st, 2015 of Joao. We did with Joao. It's kind of like we revisited him, right? So we talked about what you heard today four years ago. Now we're going to go fast forward and see, like, has everything we talked about, what has happened since then in Brazil? What has happened here? How are the two situations similar in the diaspora? Are we moving towards revolutionary pan-Africanism? Are we going the places we need to go for true liberation? Or are we trying to still integrate with that state? What, what does it look like? These are some of the questions we touched upon in our latest interview that took place this year in Austin, Texas. We just got back doing that one. So be on the lookout for that one too. Again, thank you, Joao. And y'all are going to really love this one coming up. Now, don't forget to check us out on Twitter at Conscien1. That's C-O-N-S-C-I-E-N-1. On Facebook at Conscientization101. And Instagram at C101 Editors. That's our show, y'all. Go to the website, subscribe today. Peace, peace, peace.